Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 5th, 2018. This is episode 2306, 2306 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, Friday, Friday. It's been a while since I did the Monster Chuck Truck thing, but it is the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A. I got a great one for you. I got tons of variety for you this week. I think you'll really enjoy it. I got Gary Collins, Jeff Lawton, Doc Bones, Charles the Humble, Mechanic Sanford, Ben Falk, Mike and Sue Laprise, and myself all on deck today. Here's what we're going to talk about. Working out with a partner when they don't really challenge you. This question's really about a guy jogging with his girlfriend, but this can be the case even with two good friends. Um, I used to lift weights with guys that could lift a lot more than me, and I used to lift weights with guys that couldn't lift as much as me. That was actually pretty easy because you just adjust the weight to the workout. This is about running, and running can be a real challenge. So Gary Collins is going to talk to us about that. Dealing with scrap timber during land development with Jeff Lawton. This is something that's very common. There's a certain amount of timber when we, we clear some land that we can use in a, in a really obvious way. And then we have leftover stuff, and then we don't, really don't know what to do with it. Jeff's going to talk to you about that. Doc Bones is going to talk about advanced medical training. This was a question for me. I recently did a show, and I said I think that part of basic preparedness would be take a basic first aid and CPR course from the American Red Cross because it's available throughout the country, and it's free. And the guy said, well, what if I want to go a little better than that? What if I? And I thought, you know what? I'm not doing that. i got an MD on staff. So over to Doc Bones, that question goes. Choosing a truck for your homestead, in this particular instance, worrying about the size of the truck and its capabilities uh, with a limited budget for a truck that won't be driven much but will be used as a work truck. Uh, that will go, to, of course, to Charles the Humble Mechanic Sanford. Uh, and then we have Getting Trees Ready for Winter with Ben Falk. Winter, trees, Ben Falk. Just writes itself, doesn't it? And then dealing with excessive screen time. You know, we have these, we call teenagers today screenagers, right? Like, so how do we, how do we balance the, the good of computers and phones and tablets and iPads, et cetera, with the negative effects of too much use? Of course, Mike and Sue Laprise, our homeschool uh, couple and experts on that, uh, we'll take that one. And then I have a guy that's kind of shit in his pants, just to be blunt, okay? His company was just acquired in a merger, and the, 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 the acquiree uh, and the acquirer uh, are, are, are being, you know, all nice with each other right now. And the acquisition company says nothing's going to change. Don't worry about it. He wants to know what to expect when that happens. I wish it was good news. Now, I am going to temper it when I get there with some of the things that seem like they're in place here, but I'm going to tell you what my experience has been, and I'll tell you what I would do if I were in that situation. And this is a really relevant one. I don't care who you're working for. I don't care how big or small they are. Unless you work for yourself independently and own and run your own company and make these decisions for yourself, acquisitions happen. I've been through three. I've been through three. I, I, I began working in earnest um, when I was uh, 22 years old, because you're not going to get acquired when you're in the U.S. Army. So at 22, I began working. I, I, I walked away and started doing this job, right, working here for myself with the Survival Podcast at 37. At 37 is about when I quit and went full-time with this. And in that short period, that's not that long. 
I, I went through three acquisitions. So if it can happen to me three times in that period, it can happen to you at some point in your life. And it is life-altering when it happens, even if nothing goes wrong for you. It's life-altering. Because the question of now what looms over your head, even when everything seems good. So this will be one if you've never been through it and you don't think you're going to be through it. When we get to it, pay attention anyway. Because there often will be things that happen in a, in a case of employment that can be a warning sign that you need to be proactive on the other side of things. And it doesn't always have to be a merger. It doesn't always have to be an acquisition. It can be other things. It can be, it looks like downsizing might be coming even though they're saying it's not. And what you do really is the same across the board. With that, um, let's go ahead and take a look at a year in history before we get into your questions for the expert council. We're in the year 157 A.D. We are still sticking with the Roman era area of the world, which is a big piece of it at the time. But we're talking about our furry friend, man's best friend, the dog. Here's what David Verne for ha has for us in the year 157. Since before recorded history, dogs have been at the side of man. And it turns out the ancient Romans treated them almost identically to how we do now. The modern breeds that we are familiar with didn't exist 2,000 years ago, but the same categories did. Hunting dogs, herding dogs, lap dogs, etc. The process people went through when getting a dog was the exact same as now. The first step would be picking a name with the Greek historian Xenophon, writing that the best names were short so the dog could easily be called The dog would then be house-trained and would learn basic commands such as sit, stay, come, etc. Training guides from the era recommended the dog should be rewarded through food and praise and that you should pet them, caress their head, and speak at a hearty word. People got attached to their pets just as much as we do today. There are many examples of tombs and epitaphs for dogs. A few include, quote, I am in tears while carrying you to your last resting place as much as I rejoice when bringing you home in my own hands 15 years ago, end quote. Quote, Maya never barked without reason, but now he is silent. End quote. You who pass by, if you see this monument, laugh not. I pray, though, it is a dog's grave. Tears fell for me, and dust was heaped above me by a master's hand. End quote. My take by David Verne. Sometimes, sometimes the past can seem so distant, and the people so foreign, that it can be hard to feel a connection with our ancestors. I feel a kinship with the people who wrote these epitaphs for their deceased pets because I have felt that way when I lost a dog several years ago. It seems that one constant throughout history is how we treat our dogs. And though it is common experiences like this, that we, and through common experiences like this, we can understand people around the world and far into the past. And I would add that we can understand that people really are not that different from each other. I have always said, you can judge a man... Very much so. Not only, but very much so by how he treats dogs and how he views dogs. There are people that see dogs as nothing but another animal, and I, I, I generally don't think I would get along with anybody that felt that way. And it would I don't think it would be a matter if I knew that or not. I think the person with that personality and I are not going to get along. The dog and man are different than any other creature on the planet and man. I'm a cat person too, guys. I know some of you are, but there's no comparison. There's no comparison. The dog and human have evolved together in a way that is completely symbiotic. It is completely symbiotic. The, the life of a, of a canine is better as a domestic dog than it is as a wild canine, even if that, that, that wild canine is not hunted by man. 
even if it's not considered an enemy, even if it can live its own way. The life of a dog is better than man, with a man. And the life of men is better with dogs in it. I believe that. And if you think about it, the dog is the animal that is given, in most instances, the opportunity to leave anytime it wants. It can leave and not come back. And it seldom does. And it never does when it's treated well. It's never, it's never, it never leaves when it has a strong hand to lead it and kind words in response for its proper behavior. And I've done things on training dogs before, but I'll repeat here. The dog needs a strong hand. The dog needs the human to be the leader. The dog needs the human to be the pack leader and in control. That's what makes the dog comfortable with humans, and it's one of the reasons it works so well. And it is kind of universal, but I, I am back to the person that views the dog as just an animal and does not understand the special bond between man and dog is probably a person I don't want to be friends with. And again, I don't think I would need to know that to just meet a person and soon make that determination. I don't want to be your friend. Because what, I, what is one of my laws of life? One of my laws of life is keep the people you consider your true friends to people whom you want to be a little more like in some way. And I have my doubts. Someday somebody may prove me wrong, but I have my doubts that a person that doesn't understand the special nature of canines uh, would have anything in their life that I'd want to be a little more like. Probably just lost a few listeners there. So be it. Uh, I'm a man who will stand by my principles, even when it man means simply standing by my dog. My thoughts by Jack Spierko. With that, let's get into your questions for the expert counsel today. Remember, this is how you do a question for the expert counsel. Send me, not them, an email. Put TSPC expert in the subject line. Say, my question is for, insert expert counsel member name here, my question is, ask questions in one sentence, hit return, leave space so I can read and see your clear question and who it's for, and then give me details. You do that, I will send your question to the expert counsel member. Now, I can't guarantee they'll answer it. Sometimes they push back and say, I, I, I'm not going to take this one. I can find another person. Maybe I do it myself. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know what to do with this one. And sometimes they pike. Sometimes they pike. We have a particular group that have been piking heavily lately And I have been poking the pikers, so hopefully I will de-pike the pikers soon, and we will hear from them. But these folks you hear from today are pretty dead gone consistent. Well, one of them, once you guys figure out for yourself, kind of pikes here and there, but every once in a while he dumps a few on me. Uh, but, you know, I, I pick on them for piking, but it's only because I like them. And uh, the reality is we're fortunate to have all of them that, that answer these questions. So that's how you do it. If you want to meet the expert counsel, go to the About page, uh, the About tab on the site, and there'll be a subpage there called Meet the Expert Counsel. And uh, you can click on that, and you can see all the expert counsel members and see the areas of their expertise. With that, let's talk with uh, Gary Collins right now on working out when a partner just doesn't challenge you enough to get what you're looking for out of your workout. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things about life simplification and just making your life doggone good, right? Living off the grid, health, primal living, RV living, traveling, building a house, you name it. We, we discuss it. Um, so make sure to go to my blog and check out some of my blog posts on my off the grid project and other things. 
Today's question is running with your wife or girlfriend or significant other, and one person is a better runner than the other one, and you end up not getting quite the exercise that you expect because you're faster than the other person. I've dealt with this. Um, as far as using weights, he talked about getting a weighted vest. Don't waste the money. If you got a backpack, fill it full of sand or, you know, you know, that's the easiest way to be honest. You throw in bags of sand. Don't throw it in loose because you'll never get it out. But use like, you know, um, one gallon, uh, freezer bags or something a lot or even a small trash bag, double line it, tie it up, throw it in there. That's what I would recommend. And that's what we did in the military. And easy training. You already have all everything. Just got to go out and get some dirt or sand. And uh, I'm not a big fan of ankle weights. They put a little unusual pressure on your on your um, hips. And don't get me wrong, with the weight on your on your shoulders and back, it can cause some problems. So start off light, work your way up. Another thing I would I'd recommend is you guys can go run hills. And that way, you're not getting very far ahead, obviously, because you, you run it and then you go back, run it. And that way, you know, you're in the same place. You're, you're, you're challenging each other, you know, instead of going on a long run where, you know, next thing you know, you're a mile ahead and you're stopping and waiting. I would recommend that or even doing some sprints together. And that way you can make it fun and keep it, you're, you know, you're both right there. Heck, you can even time your sprints and see as you guys progress if how fa much faster you get. I hope that helps. And anyone, for everyone, remember I am in the MSB uh, section. So you get 10% all your orders and free shipping. So make sure to go to the simplelifenow.com. Uh, next up, I have a question for Jeff Lawton on dealing with excessive scrap from uh, timber clearing. Jeff, take it away. This is a problem that I actually hear about a lot from folks, and everybody always that doesn't have the problem always just says, hey, just make hoogle swells or something. Jeff, what, what should we do in this situation? Hi, this is Jeff Lawton here coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan, 400 meters below sea level, the lowest place on earth. And I have a question here um, coming from someone in East Texas. They have 20 acres of mostly black soil, and they have an old pond that they're going to dig out, and about 50 to 60 trees that will be uprooted, and they range from 6 to 30 inches in diameter. Um, hardwood tree trunks uh, are going to go to the neighbor for sawing into lumber, uh, but the rest will remain, and they want to know what to do with them. Uh, they don't want to burn them. Uh, they want to hold on to the organic matter, I suppose. Uh, should they make a large hoogle bed, or rent a large chipper and spread the chips on the ground? Well, it's a lot of money um, to hire a big chipper, and um, surprisingly, um, you spend a lot of money. You don't get a lot of mass out, and um, but it does break down quicker. Um, hoogle beds in hot climates I'm a bit suspicious of. It's a lot of work. I haven't seen many good-looking hoogle beds. I'd like to see that. I'm going to put a challenge out there for our, our uh, listeners here. Can you send us photos of some really you know, uh, high-performance hoogle, hoogle beds? Um, don't seem to be very obvious out there on the Internet anyway. But what I like to do, 
course the leaves will all drop off they'll go down as mulch anyway I like to sort of pay a bit of a, um, a game with a chainsaw and cut everything up into one foot long branches and, and twigs and small logs and lie them on either side of my footpath going through my food forest. That doesn't matter whether it's an, a mature food forest or a, or a, a new food forest or a food forest that's going to happen sooner or later. I mark out on contour, uh, roughly, pretty close to contour, and um, I, I peg that out and then I put uh, logs on either side of a footpath um, at least two to three foot wide so I can get a good wheelbarrow down there. Optimistically, I'm going to be using that wheelbarrow for bringing out lots of produce once my food forest is up and, of course, bringing in some compost and mulch and seedlings and things. So I've got a practical footpath on contour and I, I, paste, I, I, I space them out at about 10 to 12 foot apart, roughly. They're kind of uh, syntropic agriculture-esque. Or uh, the um, the innovator of syntropic agriculture came out of Brazil. That's uh, Ernest Goitz. So it's Ernest Goitz esque type of of planning of uh, planning of um, footpaths through food forests. Now you've always got somewhere to line your chop and drop. Now I've stopped putting my logs and, and branches around the trunks of trees. I just wanted a hassle to work around them when my ground covers get over them. Um, and I want to muck about in there with other other lower shade tolerant crops. When they're right on contour, they rot quicker. Uh, they capture um, flows going across the landscape, and they're, they're easy to place because you've got a footpath to walk along and place along. Kind of looks neat. People like it. Makes it more user friendly. Um, so you get a faster breakdown, a convenient deposit. It's easy to do. It's cheap to do. Everybody knows where they're mulching. Main thing is a log twig branch mulching um, you whip a snip or you strim or whatever you guys ever in America call the, the, the field trimmer strimmers whippersnippers we call them um, you go along and you do your footpaths and you know where you are you're in between these uh, branches uh, laid, laid down on contour and it's easy to whippersnip no, there's nothing in the way you know you can just strim it off uh, weed whack it off whatever you call those things different names different places and it's easy to maintain your access through your emerging food forests, which are not easy to get access through because they get a bit sort of rampant at teenage, adolescence, um, like most things, um, before they become more sophisticated adult food forests. So you kind of get a nice access. I really like it. I, I really like And you get mushrooms growing on them, and you know where the mushrooms are. They're next to the track. Um, and, you know, when you're laying logs down on the ground, on contour, you, you've got the most contact to the soil as long as they're not too long. Don't, don't prop them up. Don't get them air drying above the soil. Get the longest length touching the soil. And if it's pretty close or on, close to or on contour, you get most water contact as well. So you're feeding the soil. So this is uh, stay, sayings I like to rem remind ourselves about food foresting and foresting in general. A forest grows on a fallen forest. And the soil is an animal that is all mouth. And the fungi are the teeth that eat the wood. Um, now, uh, Rasta Sass was the first one I heard say that, so I better give him some credit. Good old Rasta. Um, and um, then um, what we're doing is we're designing the way the forest falls. And that is what we're good at as we manage forests up into production 
and we must always remember that human settlement will not be sustainable until at least 70% of our human settlement landscape and surrounds are in forests. 70% in forests, can be any type of forest, but nice if it's food forests or at least productive forests. Okay, there you go. Hope that helps. I like the idea of distribution on contour um, because it does lend itself to being a natural path. Um, Even if you're doing this and you're kind of opening up more of a field environment, it creates a natural pathway. uh, Then when a natural pathway is used, it becomes worn in, and therefore we're not kind of wandering here and there and to and fro. And, of course, size of the path to whatever, you know, Jeff mentioned a wheelbarrow on uh, acreage the size that we were talking about here, it might be sizing it more to something like a four-wheeler or even a larger vehicle. Uh, and if you if you, you can do it in these, like, clumps, that works. But also, if you have a lot of it, you can just make it just make it long and con- continuous uh, and leaving breaks every once in a while so that if you need to get a vehicle out and into the other area, you have access. Um, but then what you're doing is you're creating a deposition trap. You're creating a you know a deposition trap and a swell-like feature in the landscape, which works in just about any landscape. It's not a true swell, but it's a swell-like feature. And the more you can move through your landscapes with vehicles and foot traffic on contour, the better off you'll be. Is the most resilient pathway you'll create will be on contour. There are points sooner or later we got to go up or down. I understand that, but our long travels. Uh, should be on contour as much as possible to maintain uh, what we've got going on. Uh, then small footpaths off for your up and down, and then you know you have to think about it a lot when you're making your elevation changes for a vehicle. But uh, the more we can do on contour, the easier our lives will be. Uh, next up, I have a question for Doc Bones on getting more advanced medical training than you can from a couple free courses at the American Red Cross. Hi, I'm Joe Altenendi of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. Together with my wife, Amy Alden, an advanced registered nurse practitioner, we're the authors of the Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its 700-page third edition, and the designers of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's question for the expert counsel comes from Daniel, who writes, Do you have any recommendations on more advanced medical resources? Details. I would like to improve my skills beyond basic Red Cross medical skills. Do you have any thoughts on courses or resources that would be reasonable but helpful? I certainly could take the training for EMT basic, but from what I've seen, that's way more money than is reasonable to spend at this point. Thanks, Daniel. Daniel, there certainly is a lot to know, and you're to be commended for picking up the flag and wanting to learn more skills. There are a lot of folks just like you out there. That's why we put on eight-hour classes like the one we're having in Kodak, Tennessee on the 20th of the month, and also in South Florida in November. We teach things like hemorrhage control, wound closure with suturing and stapling, how to identify diseases like pneumonia on stethoscope, and a lot more. Check it out at doomandbloom.net's classes page. But there are various other ways to get practical training. Almost every municipality gives you access to various courses that would help you function to be an effective health care provider. Some are time-intensive and costly, but many resources, like your local library, are not. You mentioned EMT, Emergency Medical Technician Basic. 
This indeed is the standard for providing emergency care, pre-hospital care. The courses are set out by the U.S. Department of Transportation, and they're offered by many community colleges. It's a process for sure, but you know what? Some small towns that are in need of emergency medical personnel, they don't grow on trees, might consider subsidizing your education if you commit to serving them afterwards. So that's something you might look into. These programs are based, you have to remember, around delivering the patient to a hospital as the end result. As medical facilities might not be available in the aftermath of a disaster, they may not be perfect for a long-term survival situation, which is the kind of writing that we do. Now, having said that, you'll still learn a lot of useful information, and we highly recommend them. It should be noted that there are different levels of EMT. EMT Basic is a primary course of study, but you can continue your studies, become a paramedic. In remote areas, they might even take on the roles of physicians and nurses if the area is underserved to give injections, place casts, stitch up wounds, and these skills are highly pertinent in the aftermath of a disaster. You could also take CERT courses. Those are Community Emergency Response Team classes. Most of us will not have the time and resources to commit to an intensive course of training like EMT Basic, but this is something that might be the ticket for people who can't do that. These programs cover a lot of the same subject, although in a lot less detail, it would certainly represent a good start on your way to getting trained. The usual course length is 40 to 80 hours, and many municipalities offer this course as part of a disaster readiness program. Let's say you're not interested in being the medic for your family in a long-term disaster. You just want to know what to do if there's a mishap on a hunting trip. Well, in that case, you might consider wilderness or other medical-type courses, tactical medical courses or wilderness medical courses. There are a number of specialty courses provided by private enterprises like my good friend Dave Canterbury's group group in Ohio, which might be helpful. You might consider going to the next National Wilderness Medical Conference and take their Advanced Wilderness Expedition Provider class. One course of learning not yet mentioned is military training. Some of the best caregivers in times of trouble are going to be those people who have served as medics in our armed forces. If you're a young whippersnapper and eligible to serve, consider it. It's a big decision, but one that will pay dividends down the road. For now, at least consider a good library of medical and dental books to give you the tools to be an effective medic in a grid-down situation. Even if you were already a doctor, let's say a general practitioner, you'd need to have various references to learn how to, let's say, perform surgical procedures you'd ordinarily send off to the local surgeon. If you're that local surgeon, you'd need references to refresh your knowledge of, say, maybe the treatment of diabetes. Even the most resourceful homesteader doesn't know everything. Don't ignore online sources of information. Take advantage of websites with quality medical information. There are plenty of them out there. I'm a little biased towards one in particular that's got the words doom and bloom on it. Print out information you believe will be helpful to your specific situation. You will accumulate a unique store of knowledge that actually fits your particular situation. On our site alone, there are a gazillion print-friendly articles. Of course, some information is best absorbed visually. Sites like YouTube have thousands of medically-oriented films on just about every topic. Our videos at Dr. Bones' Nurse Amy channel range from suturing wounds to identifying fractures to dealing with a damaged tooth. You'll have the benefit of seeing things done in real time, which is always better than just looking at pictures. The number of medical resources is almost endless. Take advantage of them and have no doubt, one day you will save lives. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones. God bless and thanks for listening. Hey, make an old man, me, very happy by subscribing to our website at doomandbloom.net and by checking out Nurse Amy's entire line of books, medical kits, and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. To help you succeed even when everything else fails, and don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets 10% off everything at our store 
at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks again. All right, next up I have a question for Charles, the humble mechanic, on picking a truck that you're going to be using uh, as a work truck and, and needing to make sure you have basically enough enough size in the truck and power in the truck to accomplish the tasks at hand. What's up, everybody? It's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. This one comes in from Jesse. Just says, my wife and I are looking to get a used truck, but not sure of the size. Details, the main purpose of the truck is going to be towing things like lumber and a trailer. We want a trailer that's big enough for us and our two kids to go hunt or camp, but it doesn't have to be one that we could live out of. We just have a minivan now, and what I can tow dry is about the right size, but I'll want to load some things up, and that'll quickly be over my towing capacity. We were originally thinking about a Tacoma, but not sure if a V6 would be best. Our budget is about $10,000, and I wouldn't mind a higher mileage truck since it's not going to be my commute vehicle. We will be moving to a semi-remote town in southern New Mexico. Not sure how available diesel is or if there's mechanics around. Thank you. All right, so you want to get a truck, and as I'm reading this, there's a statement like ringing in the back of my mind that's saying something like, very few people to probably no one ever has said, I wish I would have got a smaller truck unless you're trying to park it like in the mall or going through a drive through. So already I'm thinking I would buy the biggest truck that I could possibly find for my budget of about $10,000. Now on the Tacoma and those kind of small ish or like mid size ish trucks, I actually really like that size truck. We had a Nissan Frontier for many years. It was a great truck performed flawlessly. I think we had it like eight years, never had one issue with it, did normal maintenance, put tires on it. And that was about all I ever did. And it was perfect for what we did, you know, going to Home Depot and buying a bunch of lumber or towing my small utility trailer with a four wheeler on it, that kind of stuff. If you do go the Tacoma route, I would again, recommend get the biggest one you can. So get the big full four door cabin and the long bed. If you can find one, I'm going to bet, though, what you're going to pay for that. You could probably get a little bit newer, bigger Ford F-150 because those Tacomas hold their value really, really well, like insanely well. In fact, for that budget, you could probably get a comparable year in mileage Tundra, which is a quite a bit bigger truck. Of course, you're going to be paying more for fuel and things like that, but you're going to have more room. One of the things I worry about is... It's your, you, your wife, two kids. We're going camping and hunting, so we're going to have a bunch of gear with us. You know, maybe that's going in the bed of the truck. Maybe we're going to get a cap for the bed of the truck to put our, our camping stuff in. Maybe it's going in the trailer. But what's it going to be like sitting in a Tacoma for a couple of hours with four people jammed into it? Maybe there's car seats, maybe not. Having a car seat in a car is very different than having a person sitting in that seat. So those are some things you want to consider. What I would probably do is I would take my family and I would go somewhere that has a huge selection of cars. So, you know, a lot of people really hate CarMax and think they charge too much for cars. That's fine. You don't need to buy anything there, but they will generally have a pretty good selection of different vehicles. So they might have a Tundra, a Tacoma, an F-150, a Silverado, a Nissan Frontier, a Nissan Titan, right? All those kind of trucks that you can sit in all of them and think, you know, first 
does my family fit inside the vehicle? Am I going to be driving for four hours with my seven-year-old kicking the back of my seat because they don't have enough room in the truck? To me, that's that's like going to be priority number one, because if that's the case, you're probably never going to go camping. At least I could say that I would probably never go camping if, if I had to put up with that. So consider the utility of your family inside the vehicle in addition to towing capacity. There was an expert panel show that I and Stephen Harris kind of teamed up on an answer many, 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 many months ago. Like it might have even been last year where Stephen actually bought a truck sight unseen from Texas, had someone do an inspection on it down at that dealership there, and then had it shipped to his house. That may be something else you'll want to look at. You know, you're moving to New Mexico, but not really sure where you're at now. Maybe somewhere in Texas is going to have a bigger selection of trucks that does fit your needs. I would also consider, since it's not your commuter vehicle or primary vehicle, think about getting one that's maybe not so well-equipped. You know, can you put up with crank windows and save some money that way? Not only save some money on the purchase, but save some money in potential repairs down the road and maybe get something a bit over, right, over capacity for towing. That way in a few years, if you decide, you know what, this 20-foot camper's not big enough, we want a 37-footer, you still got plenty of towing capacity. So again, I, I just can't help but think you're not going to be disappointed that you bought too big of a truck. But you could easily be disappointed that you bought too small of a truck, whether that's cabin size, bed size, towing capacity, engine size. This is a little bit of an area that I have sort of been struggling with as well as my wife and I decide on what our next vehicle is going to be. Do we get a truck? Do we get a bigger SUV? You know, what truck do we want? I'm not married to any brand, you know, Ford, Chevy, Dodge, I'm not married to any of those brands. So I don't really care. I want to get the right truck for us, which means I'm probably going to be doing more in-person research rather than digital research. Once you find the truck you want, say a 2010 F-150, okay, now we've decided we want that truck. We know it's going to meet all of our towing needs. It has plenty of space. It's got the features that we like. You mentioned moving to a new area. So finding a, a mechanic to work on the truck is going to be important as well as your, your other cars. I'd probably recommend starting to learn how to do some of this stuff yourself Easy stuff, you know, brakes, air filter, that kind of thing. That way you don't have to pay someone to do all of that. There are also jobs that are really easy, like oil changes, that I'm happy to pay someone else to do for me. By the time you buy all the parts, you usually only spend about 15 bucks in labor. And to not lay, like, in a gravel driveway getting dripped on with hot engine oil, I'll happily pay $15. I've done that enough in my life. I don't need to do it anymore if you decide you want to do that. But it's still important to know how to do that. Ultimately, when it comes to buying any car, whether it's a, a small sedan or a truck like you're looking for, you really truly have to be honest with your needs for the vehicle, right? Buy whatever you want if you want it. But if you're trying to identify the right car for you, Really be honest with yourself, which is something that can be pretty hard, right? I love all the bells and whistles of new modern cars. I think that stuff's cool. Do I need it? No. Am I going to use it most of the time? No. And that's okay. Just be honest with yourself. How often are you going to drive this truck? Is your family going to fit in it? Does it meet your towing capacity? Are you talking about going camping every weekend or hunting every weekend? Or is this two times a year that you're going to be doing that? Well, you probably don't need to buy a truck. Perhaps renting a truck for that vacation hunting trip is a much better use of your money than spending 
you know, $400, $300 a month on a car that you drive one or two times a month. We, we get caught in like, I got a camper, so I have to have a truck for it, which, you know, you, you probably do. But there's also alternatives to buying that big truck that maybe you don't need. You just want. Again, you want it? Buy it. Cool with me. Not going to give you a hard time about it. But really look at how often you plan on doing that before you buy something and start paying car payments on it or pay cash for it, paying insurance on it, paying maintenance costs on it. Because there may be a better alternative that's going to actually cost you much less money have less responsibility of owning your own vehicle where you can just rent it if you're only really using it for the purpose of what you emailed about a couple of times a year. So it all boils down to this. Make sure you find something that fits your needs and your family's needs, right? Your family actually fits in the vehicle. And I would probably buy a bigger truck over a smaller truck, especially if I'm going to be towing a bunch. It's going to be more room in the cab and it's going to tow more stuff. You'll be much less disappointed with having too much space than you would be with not having enough space. So I hope that helps a little bit and didn't actually make you more confused on what you should do, but I try really hard not to make a specific recommendation on you should buy this truck because it just because it fits my needs doesn't mean that it's going to fit your needs. Just because I like it doesn't mean you will. Just want to give you some ammunition to use when making that decision. Guys, if you want to see more of my stuff, head over to HumbleMechanic.com. Jack, TSP, have an awesome weekend, and I'll talk to you guys again next time. I guess my only addition there, when you're looking at work trucks, the only time anybody ever says, I wish my truck was smaller, is in a parking lot. Um, I drive a F-350 with a full-size eight-foot bed quad cab four-door. And the only time I go, man, this, this truck's a pain in the ass, is when you know, I'm in a, a, a smaller parking lot or something like that and trying to find a place to park. And it, it's so much so that when I'm driving my, my wife's forerunner at times, I'll be driving through a parking lot, especially if I'm driving and she's with me. She's like, why do you park there? And I'm like, oh. And what it is, in my head, I'm always thinking like I'm driving my Ford even when I'm not. Uh, and with big trucks, it's not just getting into a parking place. It's, well, what happens when someone takes that place behind me and next to me on both sides? Um, and getting back out. So you have to be a bit strategic with a larger vehicle. Otherwise, my opinion is you buy the most power uh, and size when you're looking at a work truck as you can get with, you know, a common sense reality check against it. Um, you know, a, five, a 900 series 5-ton military surplus vehicle is probably not the right truck for this application. Uh, to, to go to the extreme and say what not to. Probably a Hammett is probably not a good idea. And if you don't know what Hammett is, look it up. Uh, I'm not even going to tell you how to spell it. You'll have to figure it out yourself. Anyway, with that, let's take another one. This is for Ben Falk on uh, getting your trees ready for winter. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design and the Expert Council. Question about protecting trees for winter. Um, when a lot of people say protecting trees for winter, they're thinking against actual snow, which in a really cold climate, um, like where I live in Vermont or where you are in Minnesota, um, especially some parts of Minnesota, that actually means that less so. You know, if you think of typical, like, suburban landscaping, people will wrap their ornamentals in burlap and things like that. Um, that's where you're kind of in more of an edge climate where maybe there's a harsh snow event or two. But we don't really want to grow plants that need that kind of protection in really cold climates if we're interested in, like, functional landscaping which I'm sure you are if you're listening to Jack's show. So I'm not going to talk about any of that stuff. We don't do any of that. I don't recommend doing any of that. Again, if you want 
functional landscaping. Um, so it's more of an issue not to protect against cold and snow, because that's just the state of winter. Um, you got to have plants hardy for that. Um, it's more of an issue to protect from uh, mice, voles, voles especially, and deer. And our kind of best time-tested way of protecting against voles, I'll go through, and then deer, there's a lot of different options. But basically what we do in most landscaping of maybe a few hundred trees or less, um, sometimes we'll actually protect whole areas with fencing, but when we're protecting individual plants, we'll do the following. Um, the vole guards we actually always do, so that part is every time when it's a single-stemmed tree that voles will tend to eat. That varies from area to area, but for us, that's basically apples are top of the list. They will also go for chestnuts. They don't seem to want to go for some of the pears that we focus on. Um, they will go for oaks if they're really hungry. Um, prunus, they'll certainly go for. Uh, prunus family, prunus genus plants, um, rose family as a whole. Um, but not pears, but apples primarily. They just love apples. Take window screening, 36 inch or 48 inch, and you chop saw it with a metal blade in half. So you immediately double how much you have. You can buy these rolls at the hardware store. And then you just roll it up. We used to use a, a, you know, a broomstick without the broom on the end, but you don't really need that at all. You just roll it by hand tightly. Um, so that you have an either 18-inch or 24-inch length of it. You need about 10 to 14 inches um, of width, and you want either 18 or 24 inches high. Again, 10 to 14 inches of, of lineal run of the Volgard. That allows for it to get big enough as the tree as the tree grows, for it to expand to be protective of the tree until, let's say, the tree is like 6-inch diameter or so. When voles, vole pressure and and threat really tapers off, um, and I've we do 18 inch. I have known people who have lost nice five inch diameter apples, eight years old, at like 20 inches, 24 inches above the 18 inch volgards. I think they've even lost them above the 24 inch volgard actually when it's a snowdrift. That can certainly happen. So. You know, something to keep in mind. You don't really want low branches anyways in snow country. It's another thing to keep in mind. Prune up your trees because snow will come in. It will form and, and, you know, grow up as it accumulates up to include lower branches. And then you'll get a rain event or a melting event and a refreeze. And those branches will be grabbed by a crust layer. And then that crust layer will drop as the snow is melting, some years, some years not, some years many times, and that will rip those branches down, and then that'll actually just damage the trunk and core parts of the tree. So pruning up is one important strategy. But for the Volgards, roll them up nice and tight. We kind of fold the end a little bit. It's a little hard to describe the exact um, technique, but you'll work it out over time. But you roll it up tight, fold the end, make sure it doesn't unroll. And then put the ragged side down so it scratches the voles' backs if they're trying to get under it. Um, and then, you know, apply it to the tree by basically unrolling it and you end up with the opposite. It folded around the tree the opposite way. It clings tightly. You use metal window screen, not, you know, vinyl or fiberglass or whatever they make it in. Just metal. I don't care about the color, silver or gray you can choose from or, or dark like charcoal. That tends to look the best. 
Um, and then put the ragged side down and make sure it's right on the ground. If you have any mulch, you know, scratch the mulch away and make sure it's as down close to the roots as possible. I've never had them go under it, which is amazing. I would think they could easily get under it, but they don't seem to want to. I think they're traveling in, you know, actually in the snow surface, not always just at the ground surface where the ground meets the snow. They're actually in the snow a lot of the time. So they meet that volgard and they just go away. Um, and then as far as, um, Deer, we like two inch by four inch metal, you know, welded wire fencing, either four feet or five feet tall. Fifth, 12 to 15 feet of it gives you enough per tree. Uh, two fiber rod stakes, half inch or five eighths inch stakes on either end. Fold over like three or four of the, the side that you cut. Make sure when you cut it, you give yourself an option. You cut it at the far end of one horizontal, of each horizontal run, so you have like a nice prong you can fold over you don't have to do each one i have sometimes interns and employees fold over each horizontal wire like you know you're not trying to stop a bear and it wouldn't stop a bear anyway so you just you want to be able to get at it so you want to be able to just have it accessible you're going to pull these off sometimes to deal with the tree deal with pruning things like that and when the tree's bigger you only need three or four of those fold it over two fiber rods them done make sure you anchor those fiber rods down pretty deeply tap them with a mallet or protect the top otherwise you'll splinter the fiberglass fiberglass splinters suck and um that's pretty much what we do if you have lots of trees in one area fencing can start to become reasonable especially baited electric fence um you can look into that but we, we we've had success using a uh, fiber um aluminum foil with peanut butter on it uh, you want them to know that it's electrified. It's not stopping them because of physical force. Obviously, it's them knowing this is going to shock them and just driving them away. And you got to kind of train the local herd. So that's most of it. Not all of it, but seven minutes worth. Good luck. You know, I, I would just add that further here in the south where we don't have these long-duration snow covers, our, our biggest threat in winter is snow and ice, especially early in the season when we occasionally, you know, usually we get our ice storms in like February. That's usually when we get our, you know, our depth of our cold here. But we occasionally get ice storms in October and November. And in our climate, our leaves are still on our trees, and you can lose branches pretty heavily. So that's one of those things to look out for with good pruning, uh, and even like if you have like high value trees and you have a, a scenario like this playing out, you can't do this on a hundred acres of orchard. <clears throat> but if you have five or six high value trees in that scenario, I am not above going out several times during that storm, assuming it's safe and you know possible and all, uh, with a, a, a long handled shovel or something like that, and knocking the snow and the ice off of the tree. Uh, because that weight builds up and, and just just ruins trees. I've, I've had it happen to me, and it sucks. Um, so that would be like my only addition there. Next, we have a, a question from Micah Sulaprise on dealing with excessive screen time with your kids. This is Michael and Sulaprise with HaloBySue.com. Designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. I want to start by giving a shout-out to uh, one Jeremiah Flourish. Jeremiah, I hope I'm saying your name right. Anyway, our eldest son gets on Twitter. Uh, he espouses the libertarian anarcho-capitalist values on Twitter. And he happened to run into Jeremiah online. And Jeremiah recognized our son's last name and said, Are your parents Michael and Sue LaPreeze? 
And he had heard of us on TSP, and he had some very nice things to say. So, Jeremiah, I just want to say, uh, yeah, you were talking to our son. That's our eldest. And thank you for the kind compliments. Yeah, I'm glad you're listening. Yes. So today's question is this. What are some ways to lose the screen time crunch? Background. I know I'm not the only one out here with this problem. Unfortunately, we have a screen time problem at our house. I recognize that it needs to be drastically scaled back, and I've made attempts to do so, only to find us back in the rut. The children, oldest is six, going on 18, and the youngest is four weeks old, our fifth child, have problems communicating with each other, and I know that it's in part due to age, but also, I think, anyway, a byproduct of too much screen time. It's totally my fault that they have gotten used to all sorts of devices. How do you get the kids off the screens? I want them to have independent time, but have struggled to find things that they will actually do. Please help and go easy on me. I was a stickler with our first, and then we just kept having babies, and I've lost my way. Thanks. Karen in Virginia. Well, Karen, I don't know if we'll be quote-unquote easy on you, but I think like Jack likes to say about us that we're a little bit more diplomatic than he is. Well, and we understand. We totally understand. We've 10 kids now, and... um Screen time is a super easy. Everybody's quieter. They don't mess up the house. So, um, but we really appreciate that. You know, you got to take responsibility. Just like we have to at times go. Okay, we got to put the technology away for a while. Yes. So um, I don't know Karen, but I know me and the screen time issues. Our house belongs to the adults, right? I tell myself I'm tired. I just want to sit down, especially I get home from work. Um, and browse some Facebook, look at YouTube. Yeah, I got a couple of YouTube channels I like looking at some construction stuff and all. And um, but when I'm done doing that, I'm not any less tired. And uh, from doing nothing, and I'm not less, uh, and I'm probably more less encouraged when I do nothing versus getting shit done. Yeah, I, I agree. So the problem I would say belongs to the adults. Yes, the reason I want my kids to have screen time is because I want time out. So I've got to. Engage more with them. Yes, and so part of that is self-discipline. And, and this is the difficulty. The screens are designed to draw you in. That's yeah. what they're trying to do. They're drawing you in. And I'll give you an example about the self-discipline. So Jack's coming to the San Antonio area to do a um, liquor tasting. He's judging some competition. And he had posted about having a meetup. And I'd love to go to that. And it's really local. And it would be great. And we could meet other people in the TSP community. But unfortunately... We're going to be camping. Which is good. Which is good. Because we, there's no screen time on campouts. There's no screen time <laughs> on campouts. And we have three new littles who've probably never been camping, so we're just starting to break them in. They're two, three, and four-year-olds, and this will be their first camping experience. It certainly won't be their last. It won't even be their last this year. Okay, so screen time does isolate and contributes to poor communication, and you can tell that just as a couple or just with friends, when you go to dinner and sit around and you're on your phones instead of talking, it definitely isolates us. So putting that aside is really important. One of the important things also to do is schedule consistent nap and bedtimes and making sure you save time for yourselves as couples at the end of the night, which obviously you guys have figured out how to do that. <laughs> so some kind of guidelines that we have for like, what is your screen time, screen time, screen time, screen yeah, time, yeah, screen time, six and under you choose for them. I choose every show they watch almost. And, um, a lot of it's educational or we have little character building series that they watch and little history things and, 
magic school bus. So I try to get a lot of learning into their screen time. So um, our four-year-old, he rests for about an hour in the afternoon while the two little ones are sleeping. And when he gets up after his hour, he can watch a show quietly and play with Duplos or something until everybody's awake. So for seven to ten-year-olds, we do a lot of monitoring of what they're watching and looking at. And asking permission for new shows. So I have to go look. You know, you want to watch The Arrow. I want to look at that. What is it all about? Is it good fit for this kid? Because it's not the same for every kid. Some kids are terrified of a thriller. And some kids are terrified of, you know, violence. And so you really have to know your kid and know where you're going to draw those boundaries for the individuals. 11 and up, there's a lot of conversation about what they're watching, what they're listening to. And what they're consuming. And that, like our kids up into a certain age, their Google, everything they look at is connected to my account. So I see everything they're doing, which occurred this week. And I said to my two, my 10 and 12 year old who is watching this on YouTube. And of course, nobody was. And um, so nobody gets to play on electronics until somebody confesses. And that's no skin off my nose. I can go weeks without them playing on electronics. And I still get to, which is a little frustrating for them because yeah. I didn't make a mistake. Yeah, and what, what your children consume is less important at that age than the conversations you have with them. Right. So when I grew up, we didn't have a TV ever. I, when I was 18, my dad went out and bought a TV while my mom was on vacation. And um, so when my mom moved in with us, we had four kids that were like, 8, 10, 12, and 15, and I'd already promised my daughter we could watch Harry Potter um, when it came out on DVD. So we're, I'm following through my promise, and we're watching this, and I can hear my mom in the kitchen, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to totally hear about that satanic and evil, and um, we're all done, and the kids go upstairs. Oh, we had lunch, and we're sitting around talking, and after lunch, my mom said, I wish I'd known that instead of banning you guys from everything, I could have allowed you to watch some of those things and then had a conversation about what that means. Because our culture is trying to draw your kids in. So getting a piece of culture and then saying, you know, how does that apply to you? What does that mean to you? What does that look like from our worldview and helping your child develop their worldview? It goes with getting maybe watching some things you wouldn't want to watch or you don't think are the best for your kid. Okay, the next thing is, uh, if you're going to eliminate that screen time, you've got to fill it in with something else, right. or else you're going to fall right back into the screen time. So the question is, then, what else do you do? And so for us, the big thing is, and and you hear this over and over again from us, we go outside. So our kids, 8 and under, and probably the 12 and under, uh, should spend as much time outside exploring and playing as they can, and using their gross motor skills as much as possible. Right. And that, so being outside, if you go out and you have an empty backyard, it's, it's not that fun, especially if it's really hot or really cold. So we have invested in our outside. Yeah, Jack has his Miyagi garden. So if you follow Jack on Pinterest, uh, not on Pinterest, on Instagram and on Facebook, you'll see that he's got, uh, you know, he's got his aquaponics and he's got the one special one that's his Miyagi garden. And so that those things are important. So for us, it's making a place for, for Sue to sit. Uh, and to set up an area where 
Uh, you can have a playpen for the little, littlest ones. Yeah, we had a place where I could nurse outside when our kids were little so that our older kids were little. I know it gets a little confusing. But um, setting that up, having a place to have a snack outside that's covered and sheltered, maybe a washing off place, a changing table, because um, we've had pouring rain, which we don't usually have. And so everybody's in the muddy puddles, which is great. But we're taking two showers a day. We're playing in the mud, showering, lunch, nap, go out, play in the mud, because it's hot rain here, and so it's super fun, but it's really messy, and so you need some setup to manage that um, outside time and getting the kids get dirty. So the other thing you want to think about in the permaculture sense is shade. Do I need a windbreak? Can I shade this space to extend our outside time on all the different seasons? And so, yeah, like a garage space would be great if you can clean up. Uh, and, and set up a heater for the wintertime or fans, depending on the weather. We have a very large space because it's an airplane hanger, so it's very large, and the kids have two-thirds of that space. Uh, and in the wintertime, we, we've got those umbrella heaters, the propane heaters, so we heat up the space. And in the summertime, we use some of those big-ass fans to try to cool it off. It, you know, you're know, you not going to really cool it off when it's 107 degrees out, but yeah. get, get some airflow. Right. And it's um, when the kids are running around, I'm cold, they are hot, but they're not. They're playing. And so it doesn't matter to them. So some low to no cost things to think about doing instead of screen time is going for a walk, planting a garden, even if it's a patio garden or just a little greenhouse on a table, setting up an obstacle course, a jungle gym, tricycles, balls, trucks, buckets and shovels, and lots of mud. We definitely recommend Lots of mud. Well, we recommend lots of mud. We don't get lots of mud. We don't get it. So it's super fun when we have <laughs> rainy, muddy puddles in mud. Yeah, and so those are like low to no cost things, but there's also inexpensive things. You can go some places, go to park days, go to uh, get a zoo pass. Yeah, and the great thing about a homeschool park day, even if you have a lot of kids, you're not there alone. And there's the old mom like me that's like, oh, let me hold your baby while you're helping the other kid and somebody else is watching. And so you've got a group of moms kind of keeping an eye on everybody. And it's a little more fun than trying to go to the park all by yourself. Then invite people over to your house. And you might think, oh, my gosh, my house is messy. So what you do is you start with your messy friend first, and you invite them over. And then you start cleaning and getting a little better at cleaning and get your kids involved. Like, hey, if we get this cleaned up, we can invite the kids over. And um, then your house gets cleaner and cleaner over time until it doesn't matter who comes over. Yeah, and when you have, like we have right now, six kids, 12 and under, well, the house is going to be somewhat messy. That's what it is. Um, And then when, when should you use Tech time. Yep. So when your work is done, right? So make a contract for when your work is done, you get so much tech time. And I'm saying that for the adults as well as the children. Uh, but for your kids, if, if they've got schooling to do, they get X amount of schooling done, they can get some tech time. Yeah. And then they have to earn more by doing a little bit more or doing some more chores. Yeah, like they do an hour's more worth of schoolwork, they can get another 30 minutes of screen time. Yeah, because if we get in and get started on school in the morning and we're not going anywhere by 1 o'clock, we're all done. That doesn't mean from 1 till 10 we're going to just sit around on the computer. No. That can't, yeah, can't no, happen. No, they're going to be outside doing a lot of stuff. So um, let's talk about what we talked about. So there's really three pieces of things that you got to look at. One is you got to be di- disciplined. It's up to you. So if you're going to be a stay-at-home mom, a homeschool mom, you've got to learn how to instill some discipline in there. Uh, number two, you need alternatives to fill up that space. Right. right? That's it's, the important thing. Yeah. And write yourself a list on the uh, somewhere where you can see it over the sink, where the kids can see it. So when they go, I want to watch TV, you have this list, and you can say, 
wait, we haven't done this today. We could read a story. We could go for a walk. We could play Play-Doh. Have the alternatives ready. And be intentional. And be intentional. So, so think about it, plan it out, and do it. So this is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you, investing in the great outdoors is a great investment for family time. Back to you, Jack. You know, um, we deal with this now with our, our grandchildren. And there is, the, 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 you know, the iPad of today is the TV of 1985 on some levels, especially with, you know, a two-year-old who it requires constant attention. And, and my wife trying to get things done. At some point, you do say, hey, if they're happy with this, um, let's let them have it for a while so I can get something done. And, and there, there is some value to that. As they get older, I actually think it's easier because you can have a rational, logical conversation. You cannot have a logical conversation with a two-year-old. They understand you. They just don't care. So we will use that, you know, maybe a little more than we should at times. But, you know, my other side of it is what are they doing with it? So my grandson, a lot of times when he's watching videos, he's watching, like, nature documentaries on big cats. That's something he's really big into now. Man, you know, I, I put that... I don't think you should spend all day doing nothing but reading books. Do people say we shouldn't spend all day on, online? I don't think you should spend all day reading books either. Like there, there has to be variety in your life. You can't get sucked into one thing. And another way to look at it, the YouTube video today is the comic book of 1975. So it's not like this is a new problem. It's just a new form of the problem. But if if you're watching, you know, Power Rangers or something, I don't have a problem with that. Kids should enjoy themselves to a degree. But if, if, if I'm looking at how, how long you've been there and you're watching educational stuff, I'll give you a little more leeway. That's one of the things I'd put in there. I love their suggestions of making sure you have other things for the kids to be doing. I think that's huge. And I, I think the very simple concept of an allowance, right? Like, I know that when my wife will give Braylon the iPad for a while, she'll say, okay, I'm going to set that thing for 30 minutes. And when it goes off, you're done. And then it's not, I'm being mean, it's just, that's the rules. And ding, 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 the thing went off, you got to go do something else, and you'll go out and play baseball or something like that. So I, I like all of their suggestions, and I just, like I say, would try to, you know, if you you say that they get 30 minutes and they want an hour, well, um, if you'll use some of that time in a way that I consider more constructive, maybe I'll give you a little more of it. You know, so you can give them, like, even if you don't homeschool, You can give them assignments. What are you interested in? Okay, well, you know, tell me, tell me about that, and, and and kind of gauge where they're at so they can't BS you, right? And say, tell you what, I'll give you an hour, but when I come back, not only do I want you to have some fun and just do whatever you want, I want to know five or ten or whatever number of facts you think about this thing that you said you're interested in. Why don't you, why don't you learn some more about that? And you, you don't have to write it like a report on it. Write it down so you don't forget it. And when, when, I, when I come back, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you those things, and if you know them, maybe I'll give you an extra 15 minutes so that we're, 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 we're engaging the learning centers because this is the reality about screen time. It is the way to learn in the future. The, the, the computer screen, the iPad screen, the cell phone screen is the TV of today. It's also the books of today. And even the TV of yesterday had, you know, National Geographic and stuff like that where we learned stuff. So put some temperance in on it, I guess, is, is my thing, in addition to some limits. 
So next up, I've got uh, my question for the day, and this is a complicated one. It comes from uh, MJ, and MJ says, I was wondering if you have any advice on how to decide if a business merger is likely to be a good or a bad thing for the employees. The owner slash CEO of our privately owned IT integration company just announced that we were sold to an investment firm who is merging us with a similar yet larger company in a neighboring region. Supposedly, there will be no changes. Our CEO has a guaranteed contract for six years with an option to extend. He said the investment firm has no interest in making any changes and are looking to grow through acquisitions. They claim the main motivation is to combine purchasing power and cover large geographical areas using a similar approach to market. Uh, we are being given a chance to speak to the new board of directors on 10-15 and ask any questions we have. Honestly, still I'm a bit shell-shocked, but I would love to take advantage of the opportunity to maybe feel them out and get some insight on a true new direction that we are taking. What should I be looking for or asking about as I research this company and decide if I want to hang on or not? If it matters, I work in one of the most profitable divisions in our company. The company we're merging with does not currently have a similar division. We have been in business for 65 years, and the CEO does truly treat us like family. We currently have a very nice profit-sharing plan and bonus structure, which I believe are the most unique aspects when compared with others. Honestly, I'm scared shitless. Part of me hopes this will be a tremendous opportunity they're promising, The other feels like we're being snowballed, and I should get ahead of the curve. Thanks, MJ. So there, there's a lot of things here. There's a lot of things here to consider. Let me let me start out with, I have never heard or had or experienced a situation where the existing person in charge was given a guaranteed contract for any length of time, let alone six years. That may change things, and it may not. I will tell you that everything else here, No, oh, it's all going to be the same. Everything will be good. It's, it, it's we're, we're growing through acquisition. I have heard all of this before, and someplace it was probably said and done that way. In the three that I've been through, it was complete, total, and utter bullshit. In general, the company being acquired is going to get gutted. Um, what makes me think this might be a little different is the company they're merging with does not compete in this space. They don't do what you do. So that does sound like, okay, well, we're, we want to be in business X, so we'll just go out and buy a company that does business X well. Um, in that scenario, what you do for that company becomes incredibly important. If what you do is very specific to the thing the company does, then in general, you may be pretty safe. If what you do is more generic, you're over human resources, you're in some sort of a management position that's really about crunching numbers and not about making the widget, whatever that is, be it product or service widget that the company does, then you end up with redundancies. And when you get a merger, I don't care if they come out and present you with a, a pint of, of unicorn blood and, and, and swear over... Uh, Odin, that, that they are going to not get rid of anybody. Once a company realizes we have four people doing the same thing and we only need one of them, those other three go away. To give you an example of one of the mergers I went through, I went to work for a company called Microtest. It was kind of a dream job for me at the time. I had to move to Pennsylvania. It's why we moved to Pennsylvania for three years to, to take the job. 
And uh, there was about 550-odd people in the company. And right after I bought my house in Pennsylvania, and literally the day that the movers came and dropped off all our stuff, and my wife was unpacking boxes in the living room, and I was using one of the extra bedrooms um, as an office, I got a phone call, and I can listen to my wife like sing-songing while she's unpacking stuff and hanging pictures up and shit like that, and, and told that we were bought out. I did manage to survive the initial two, three, four waves of layoffs, but the company initially had 550, call it that, it was probably 557 or something like that, um, and about 180 of them were in a division, it was an appliance storage uh, thing, it was different than the core of the company. Those 180 got sold off as a different piece of the company to another company, I have no idea what happened to them. The rest of us were told, just go on with your life. Everything will be swell. Everything will be fine. We're growing the market. Um, I ended up being one of 12 people that retained their position after four months. 12 out of you know another 400. So, no matter what they say, you cannot trust an acquisition company. Because they acquire to make profit, and their version of profit and your version of profit may be different. I'll tell you another experience that I had. When I ended up in this merger and I ended up being a, you know, a senior uh, executive, basically, in Fluke Networks, was not, not a bad thing in of itself. Uh, the company that owned Fluke Networks is a publicly traded company called Danaher. And Danaher would come and say, your profit margin this year needs to be X and your, your gross sales need to be Y. We don't care how you get there, but that's what you're going to do. And it made no difference that we were in the middle of a technology recession. And upper management was tasked with making those numbers. And if that meant laying people off, we don't. We didn't tell you how to do it. Acquisitions often work a lot like that. We'll give you some metrics, and you're going to have to do them whether you want to or not. My next question is, and this may be a touchy thing to ask your CEO, what is his guaranteed contract for? See, he's now a division of another company. So are they giving him the whole thing? Is he stay CEO? Is he taking over as chief executive of the company, including the, the, the other company that's being merged into you? Or is he now a president of a division? Those are very, very different things. And I don't know how you approach that. I don't know how close you are to this man. I don't know how far up in the chain you are. But, you know, then you got to start watching for signs of what they're doing. Do certain people start showing up that weren't there before to help out? Kind of like office space, but not as obvious. Because what you end up with is the acquisition company starts to see, hey, there's opportunity for our people to go into here and make things better and control things and you know give them a job and things like that. So once that starts to happen, then you get a lot more toward people with new ideas that maybe don't know what they're doing. And messing stuff up. That happens all the time. So you got to have to watch how this is going. And I'd be very interested to know, what exactly is his contract for? That, that, that's so key here. If they're making him CEO of the company, so he's, he's getting the, 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 uh, the other side of this. So it doesn't sound like this acquisition company is merging you into themselves. They own another company and they're putting the two of you together. What does that look like? Because companies generally don't have two CEOs. That doesn't make a lot of sense. What I would do if it were me, no matter how good it looks, if it looks good, great. If it works out good, great. 
I would be immediately shoring up my references, putting my resume together, and getting my resume out on the street confidentially. And I'll tell you why. It probably makes sense to do that every certain number of years in your career anyway. What else is out there? You know, you have this great stuff. What else is out there? How much more money could you be making? What what better terms could you negotiate for yourself? Can you get yourself in a position where you work from home two days a week? I promise you that is so much better. Save money and work from home two days a week is like so much better than the same money and not doing that, right? So like that's good anyway. But you have an opportunity right now. When you're interviewing, you, you, you don't ever, but I want to keep this confidential. Don't say that. That's an insult to the people you're interviewing with. They know you want to keep it confidential. If they ask for current references, you want to provide them references that know that you're looking that are outside of your current company. If any question about that comes up, you tell them that should you should they decide they want you and you decide that you're going to leave. And the last thing they would want is at least a decent reference or two from your current employer. I have good relations, and as long as I separate properly, that won't be a problem. But obviously, I don't want to talk to them about it right now. They'll usually understand that. But the reason this is a good time to do this is, one, it might be necessary, but two, you have the ability to answer the question that's always asked in any type of interview or engagement with the best answer you could ever give right now. Why are you thinking of leaving your current employment? That's Everybody is asked that. The answer here would be, I really don't want to. I love what I do, and I love the opportunity that I have, and my employer right now treats me very well. However, we have just been acquired and are being subject, subjugated to a merger. I do not know what the results of that merger are going to be, so I'm being proactive in making sure that I have opportunities elsewhere in case things go the wrong way. There are plenty of things that could happen here that would make me want to leave, or make me have to leave. My job could be eliminated. They're telling me that won't happen, but I've been through this before. I've seen this before. I've talked to people, and I know that they often say that even though they're going to do it. They also could completely change the culture and structure of the company. The type of company I'm working for and the people I'm working with and the mission that we have is very important to me. It's extremely important to me. In some instances, in some ways, it's even more important to me than the bottom line of the paycheck. So I am looking for other opportunities right now in case it becomes necessary for me to go somewhere else. Because you have just used, without saying it, the most powerful word in sales and marketing, no. What you have said before they even get, because that's going to be your first question. Often that's in a pre-interview interview. That's in like, I've looked at your resume, I'd like to discuss some things with you, but they'll ask you that on the phone before you even sit down with them. And when you gave them that answer, what you just said is, I am an extremely qualified employee that you would be lucky to have. And I am discussing this with you because I might be on the market soon, but I don't really hope that that becomes the case. And even if you aren't going to get into a place where you want to leave, and they even if they like if they research the company or whatever, um, and decided like they're probably not going to throw this guy out based on the way they do things, um, and he won't be available because of why he thinks he might be, they still want to see you. Your stock price just went up. Your stock price went up. I wonder if we... Do you know when you're going to get the most pay a company can afford to give you? Is when two people that are talking about hiring you and you don't hear the conversation, and one says, maybe we can get them or I hope we can get them, or I hope they'll say yes. 
Once you get into that position, I'm not saying they're going to give you a great offer. They're going to give you the best offer that they can. They're absolutely going to put the pencil, the sharpener to the pencil, and figure out everything within your sphere, and they're going to make the most, they'll make concessions. That's where you get into where, like, the pay is fine. You don't need to tell them that. Right? But you, if you kind of think you've, you've kind of hit the ceiling on what they're going to come up with there, you know, guys, um, I'm just looking at all this, I'm going to have to drive quite a bit further to work. And I was going to put a lot, it's going to put a lot more time on the road. I'm really good at my job and I'm really experienced. I don't need supervision for this. If I did, we, I think we can both agree you wouldn't be hiring me. Could, could we test out going into this? And if it doesn't work, we can change it. Can we test out going into this? Me working from home two days a week. And, and what I, we'll have to look at the schedule and meetings and stuff like that and things that, you know, really you might want somebody on hand for and to figure out what those two days are. But if we can work out any two days, then I think I can make this work. Well, if they actually want you, and if you're that far into the process, they do. The only way they're going to say no to that is they don't have the means to make that happen. They, they, like that's, it's, it's against company policy or something. And don't be surprised if they change company policy. When I went to work for Sage Telecom, they changed company policy. I also ended up in another acquisition very quickly. That was another dream job. Everything's going to stay the same. And, and, and they were the Bobs. We actually called them the Bobs. And all the senior leadership left on their own. And they moved the customer service center to Nebraska because it was cheaper to do it there than in the telecom sector of North Texas. And they got rid of all those other people. So you may be in a good position. You may not be. What you do is you play the game on both sides. You stay to be a good soldier. You look at the opportunity. And you also look elsewhere. And let me tell you something. Looking elsewhere is not even bad if they become aware of it, if you're quality and good and they want to retain you. Existing employers, especially in a situation like this where they feel like, hey, you know, MJ may run off because he's scared. We need to do some things to reassure him here. We give him a little bit of a bonus structure or a raise or some sort of concession or maybe even a little promotion of some kind. He'll understand that we see a future with him, even because here's what usually happens. All of this dog and pony show about everything being the same is a dog and pony show, and it's usually a lie. However, they do want to retain the best people. And I'll give you an exception here in a second. But in general, they want to retain the best people, and they will fall over themselves. And if anybody leaves and it starts an exodus, the value of everybody else left behind just keeps going up every time somebody walks out that door. When that happened at Sage, and I, t I told the guy that was that was running the acquisition, I, there's no way I'm staying here. He started pretty much, he was you know it was just just short of here's a checkbook, write your own paycheck in it. He started even once he realized he wasn't going to retain me. He started asking me about like we have other companies that do other things. Would you be interested? I'm like, no, I don't want to work for you people. Don't you understand that? And the nastier I got, the more he tried to pull me into what he was doing. It was comical. It was like office space. I don't recommend that you be that much bravado about this, but you know, if, if you did say, I am a little concerned about this, and that was it. I'm a little concerned about this because I'm just not sure. You know, I've heard of people saying like things aren't going to change, and I, I'm just a little bit worried because honestly, you know, I, I based my future on being here for a long time, 
And no matter what anybody says, I have to be a little bit concerned about that right now. You know, if they're going to get rid of you, they're going to get rid of you no matter what. And if they're going to try to keep you, they're going to try to keep you no matter what. What you're influencing there is how hard are they going to try to keep you? So that when other people leave and there's there's more fat on the plate, you get yours. The people that just sit by and let it go, whether they get bounced out or retained, they don't get a bigger piece of the pie. So you want to play both sides, but you want to play it smart. You don't want to be ruthless or, or, or anything like that. You just want to put out a really good parachute right now. And, and this is good tactics for anybody in this situation or in any situation where you're concerned about the future of your company or your employment. It, you know, a lot of times you can look at the pulse of a company and you can realize, even as kind of a, a cog in the works, our business is down. We're not in a growth market anymore. We're in a decline. Take this same approach because they're going to cut and they're going to retain the top. That's what we always do. Neil Franklin and I, we saw the recession of 2008, 2009 coming a year before it happened. We sat down with our department heads in 2007 and we said there's a recession coming and they didn't believe us. And we leaned the company out ahead of the recession. And we actually grew in, in profit during the recession. That was right about the time I started the show. It's part of how I knew. That's what people. How do you how do you know back in 2008 we were about to have a crash? Because I worked with a guy where all we did was look at the market, and we since we were in staffing and telecom, and I end in between there both of those sectors, we had very good windows into the way the economy was going to go, and we knew what was coming. You need to pay attention like that as well in your own sectors and in the market as a whole, and set yourself up for success even in the face of failure. That's what I would advise you to do if you were my own son. All right, with that, we have come to the end of another episode. And uh, if you like the show and the work that we do, remember, you can always support us by joining the Member Support Brigade. To join the MSB, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You can sign up there. It's $50 a year. It comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. And if you use the discounts that you get as an MSB member, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to get your money back. Everybody I talk to that's a member says they get their money back. Uh, the other way you can help support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You're going to buy something online? Just go to tspaz.com first. You can take a look at our reviews, or you can jump on over to Amazon, see what the deals of the day are. As long as you start there, you help support us in the work that we do, no matter what you end up buying in the end. All right, so... I also always have items of review for you. And the item I have for you to review today, or I've reviewed for you today, I'm bringing around again, it is the Nutra Ninja Pro Blender. I know it doesn't seem very survivally. Is that a word? It is because I created that word like 10 years ago. Survivally. It's not very survivally. Um, but it, it really can be. First of all, we all eat, and this is a, this is a great piece of kit for your kitchen. It really is. Um, It's on sale right now, $78.99 with free shipping for Prime members. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a great product. I looked at it in the Neutral Bullet when I was deciding between the two, and I won't get into it. It's in the review if you want to read it. But even though the Bullet was cheaper, there's a reason it's cheaper. The motor's more powerful. The blades are better. Everything was better with the Ninja, so much so that it's what I've recommended now for two years. How about survivally, though? How can a, how can a blender be survivally? Well, if you go and read the review, I'll give you a recipe for just one example of something you can make for your kid. We talk about kids and screen time. How about kids and sugar, right? For your kids to drink, and your kids will drink this, and they will never complain about it. 
and it will take thousands of calories and sugar out of their diet a week without depriving them of anything or making them feel they're losing out in any way, shape, or form. That, and that's just one particular example. Um, that is huge. And, I mean, you're talking about a, a, a big difference in health here. And guess what, boys and girls? You can use that same recipe for yourself, too. Sugar, to me, is the biggest enemy of health in the United States of America today. There are more people dying from things like type 2 diabetes, obesity, and, and heart disease than anything else out there. And I don't care what the TV says, it ain't bacon that's making America fat. It's sugar. And I give you a recipe in here that will take massive amounts of sugar out of the diet of the average American. And it's just a great tool for smoothies and, and grinding coffee and all kinds of stuff. It's just an awesome tool. Uh, check it out today. It is the Nutri Ninja Pro. Uh, the item of the day, but you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day today is I Walk Beside You by Dream Theater. Uh, until this morning, when I pulled that out of the list that John Adam uh, puts together for me, I had neither heard of the band nor the song. Never heard the song before, never heard the band. So when, when I get that and I click the link to go listen to the music, I'm always like, I hope I like this. And then I'm always like, even if I don't like it, I hope I don't hate it. Because you know what I mean. Like, you can like a song. You can love a song. You can be, eh, it's all right. And then you can be like, this sucks. And I'm always like, I hope this doesn't suck. Because if it really sucks, I'm not going to play it. In my, you know, if it sucks in my opinion. And if it's going to be like screaming punk or, 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 or rap or something, I'm not going to play it. I mean, I do have some limits. Uh, but this is actually... Somewhat studio-like in formula and what have you, kind of a, I'd call it like light heavy metal, <laughs> I guess is the, if that's a thing, like I want to be metal but I'm not, like that kind of thing, but it's good, and it's a great song, and what it's real, and the lyrics are incredible, listen to the lyrics, what this song's really about is being willing to be at someone's side no matter what comes in life, no matter what comes their way, no matter how hard the road gets, you'll stand behind them with your hand on their back and you'll walk through it with them. There is a, a friend of mine, I mentioned him just a little bit ago, he's my old business partner, Neil Franklin. And he was actually pissed at me when he said this because I was, I was standing beside someone that he wanted to oppose, honestly. And he said, if I, if I have a complaint about you, it's that you're loyal to a fault. And again, he did not mean it as a compliment at the time anyway. He's he since used it discussing our loyalty to each other as a compliment. But it was a compliment to me. I, I would rather be loyal to someone that's worthy of my loyalty to the point of my own fault than to be the person that cuts and runs when things get hard. And I would say this. If you have two or three people like this in your life, you are beyond fortunate. And if you have one, you're lucky. Most people, they're lucky to have one person like this in their life that will absolutely stand with them through anything. And if you are that person, then really count your fortunes. Because the person that will do that will always attract others to them that will do the same. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.